We're going to continue our series called Family Vacation. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn in the Old Testament book of Jonah. Uh, go ahead and turn over to the book of Jonah. We're going to get to that in just a minute. And for all of you who love to take notes, I'm an interesting guy. I love to actually take notes during messages. It uh, just kind of helps me a little bit. Uh, but anyway, on your bulletin, you can see a place there to take notes. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get rolling this morning. Heavenly Father, it is great to be here today. It is an honor to be here. And Lord, what an important message as we talk about those places and sometimes relationships in our lives that intimidate us and that many times we run away from rather than in running to you and clinging to your purposes. So Lord, be with me this morning. Be with everybody here. We just praise you for your son and everything that Jesus has done for us. And all God's people said, amen. All right, um, this whole idea of family vacation, we take a location in the Bible and we try to parallel it with a location that maybe some of you or all of us maybe have been to as far as a family vacation. So today's an interesting location. It is the location of Nineveh, and Nineveh represents anything that is interesting or intimidating or borderline crazy that you've been a part of in your vacation. How many of you have ever been in a strange almost scary situation with your family on vacation. Anyone? Good. I'm glad four of you can relate to today's message. So <laughs> if you hang out enough with your family and you go on vacations, usually sometimes you'll pull into a city or, or there'll be an awkward situation and you're, you're just a little nervous. Um, and I know as the dad of the house, it's, it's hard when dad gets scared. You know, uh, I've been in those situations. We've all been in those situations. Interesting places. God has a way uh, I think it's a gift of mine, at least my family, that no matter where we're at on vacation, interesting people seem to find me. I don't know what that's all about, but they really do. Not long ago, we were in Southern Illinois. Anybody grow up in Southern Illinois? Good. So you know what I'm about ready to share. You can relate to this. Okay. So we're in Southern Illinois. We're in this pool, and there's this very vocal woman that I think she had made herself the sheriff of the pool. I don't know why, but she was the sheriff of the pool, and she was very loud. And so we're over there. And just out of the blue, she belts out, hey, can you kids read? Now, I'm not making fun of her. That's exactly how she talked. And the kids looked up. She goes, can you read? And they're like, uh, yeah. What's that sign say behind you? And they turn around and says, uh, uh, no food, no drinks. What you got in your hands? What's right there? Food and drinks. Get those out of here. And I was like, whoa. And there was a part of me that thought, you know, if we got in a fight, I think she'd win. You ever have, she was that kind of a woman. She had summer teeth, which was nice. Some were over here, some were over there, you know. But we have, we have interesting, intimidating people when we travel that we meet. One time we were coming back, we were way out west. Some of you have experiences, I guarantee. If you're out west in the Wyoming, Montana area around July and August, you're going to run into a large group of people that are traveling to this little thing called Sturgis. Anybody heard of that? And I still remember in my rearview mirror seeing this, and this was not 10 or 11, you know, this was a huge gang, like a black cloud was behind me. And I'm looking, and especially my son Caleb, and I turned to the kids, I said, I'm not trying to scare you, but just lay down in the seats. <laughs> and when they pass, I'll tell you, don't say anything, no eye contact, you know. And I'm sitting, when they passed, it seemed like it took a month for them to get by. And the whole time I'm just praying, no eye contact, praying. And I mean, it was, I mean, it was literally scary. In life, there are times that God will call out to us to go to places 
or maybe build a relationship with someone and it's completely out of our comfort zone. That's Jonah. And when we get into this story today, I want you and hopefully uh, I, ho- I do a well enough job to communicate this story is so much more than just a guy got, that got thrown over and a, and a great fish swallowed him. That always gets the headlines, but boy, there's so much more to Jonah than that. And that's what we're going to get in today. Here's why this story is so amazing. God uses the word throughout this text, great. And you read about the great city of Nineveh nine times. You read about the disobedient prophet, Jonah, 18 times. But the name Yahweh, L-O-R-D, capital letters, Yahweh, is communicated 38 times throughout the book of Jonah. So at the end of it all, when you think about Jonah, you think about the fact that God is in control. Man, would you repeat that with me? God is in control. That's it. God is in control. Even when we want to run from God's purpose. And that's a problem that all of us have in our lives one time or another is we run from God's purpose. All of us have a different perspective when you think about the word running. I heard this quote the other day and I like this. His name's Mike Royka. Maybe some of you can relate. It's unusual for people to run around the city streets unless they are thieves or victims. It makes people nervous to see someone running. I know that when I see someone running on my street, my instincts tell me I'm going to let the dog out after them. Now, how many of you get annoyed with runners? Anybody? No one? I get annoyed with bikers, okay? I'm going to confess that. Okay. How about this perspective of running? You were born to run. Maybe not fast. Maybe not far. Maybe not even efficiently as others do. But you got to get up and move. you got to fire up that engine. That energy-producing, oxygen-delivering, bone-strengthening process we call running. That's Florence Griffith Joyner, gold medal winner in the 1988 Olympics. Now, I think most of us fall somewhere in between, where runners either annoy us, or we're not going to run, or we don't, we're never going to get into that, or we're like, we know running or walking is exhilarating. You probably fall somewhere in there. But when I talk about running this morning, what I'm talking about are those times in our life, not physically, but spiritually, that we sense God has called us to do something, and we're moving away from God. And I don't think I'm alone. I think all of us can relate to times in our lives that God has put something on our hearts, and we have moved, instead of closer to God, we're actually running away from God. And that's Jonah's story. Turn with me to Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, and he said, Go to what? The great city of Nineveh. Preach against it, because of its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah ran from the Lord, and he headed to Tarshish. And he went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for the port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from God. Now, here's what you need to understand. Uh, in the Hebrew culture, there were two primary leadership tasks as a spiritual leader. Number one, a priest. Number two is a prophet. If you're a priest, 
Your responsibilities were to serve in the temple, to offer sacrifices, to lead in worship. They even helped settle legal disputes. It was a local position of spiritual leadership that was critical. But there's another. There's another leader, and that is a prophet. You're a prophet. You are global. And when you receive the call, you have to go anywhere at any time to deliver God's message. Anywhere. So when Jonah receives the call, he already knows his position. He's a prophet. God wants him to go to Nineveh. Do you know how hard it is in our lives to go to the very places that intimidate us? To maybe go and talk to somebody that intimidates us? Because that's exactly what he's asked Jonah to do. And what's he do instead? Spiritually, he goes AWOL. He runs from God. If you want to write this quote down, I can't tell you over the years how many times I've thought about this, and it's so true. John Maxwell said, if you want to know God's will, obey God's word. If you want to know God's will, and everybody's like, I just don't know what God's will is for my life. Well, let's start with the Bible, and I'm not being sarcastic. And just allow God's word to start working through your life, and here's what's going to happen. You'll know his will when you know his word. Too many people, I'm going to be honest, I think get really mystical trying to find God. You know, I, I pray that if I look out in the yard and I see four daisies, that means God wants me to buy four bagels. You know, they, they try to analyze everything. And I think sometimes God said, why don't you just obey my word? Now, I don't know about you. That's pretty tough to do. I mean, if you get serious about God and his word, he will start to lead you through his word. And that's exactly what he's doing with Jonah. Even though where he told him to go was a wicked place, Nineveh. Now, how wicked was Nineveh? Another prophet, Nahum, called it the city of blood. Another prophet, Ezekiel, talked about the city that he ran to, Tarshish, saying that it was wealthy and self-sufficient. Now, here's the deal. Jonah has a decision to make, go to Nineveh, do what God wants him to do, or turn tail and go the other way and take the road of comfort. And the Bible even says in verse 3 there, he paid a great price. We all pay a price. All of us in this room, if I gave you a mic and said, take two minutes and share a time in your life that you sensed God calling you to do something and you didn't do it, how'd that turn out? And one by one, we'd all share it didn't turn out well. Raise your hand if something didn't turn out well, because I want to bring the mic to you. No, I'm not going to do that. But seriously, all of us can relate to Jonah is there are times God lays something on us and it feels like Nineveh. It feels like God's calling us to do something that is so out of our comfort zone. We'd much rather take the safer route. So he gets on the boat and he gets to Joppa and then he's starting to head uh, to Tarshish and we know that he does something very interesting. He actually falls asleep. He just totally ignores God's call. John Ortberg, and later on, you're going to see a couple of books that I recommend for summer reading. But John Ortberg loves Dr. Seuss. And he said if Dr. Seuss wrote a book about Jonah, he thinks it would sound something like this. This is, first of all, God. Could you, would you go and preach? Could you, would you go out to reach the people of Assyria? For you are fit my criteria. That's quite a stretch with that word. Anyway, 
And this is Jonah's reply. I would not go there in a boat. I would not go there if I could float. I would not go there in a gale. I would not go there in a whale. I do not like the people there. If they all died, I would not care. I will not go to that great town. I'd rather choke. I'd rather drown. I will not go by land or sea. So stop this crazy talk and let me be. You know, sometimes that's the exact conversation we have with God. I am not going to do that. And you just, somebody else needs to do that. Uh, years ago, I remember somebody saying, you know, every time we keep saying, why doesn't somebody do something? It may be God's way of saying, you're somebody. You ever notice that? Drives me crazy. Shouldn't tell you this, but I've been in ministry long enough. If you don't like it, I don't care. So here's what <laughs> bothers me. People come and say, this is really a burden on my heart. I really want to get this done. This needs to be done, John. And so I was like, do it. Now, when I was younger, I'd be like, okay, I feel guilty. Let me, give me that number, you know. And then I would try to do something about it. Now I'd say, you mean God's laid this? How can I help you to get that done? Because you are passionate about that. We really need to know that God is still moving us out of our comfort zones. Every day, God wants us out of our comfort zone. So here's Jonah, and he's sailing away, verses 5 through 7. And notice what happens. He falls asleep. Now, let me tell you, when you first read that, you think, how could he possibly be sleeping? He must be content. I don't think that's it at all. We know, all of us have experienced this, when you're in deep, deep depression, what's the one thing you can't wait to do? Sleep. I know when I'm going through my hardest times in life, when I reflect and look back, I get so exhausted sometimes for stress. All I can think about is, man, it would be great to sleep. And we, the deeper we get into depression, the more we want to sleep. In Stanford, they did research in 2007 of 18,980 people about depression. And they found that individuals dealing with depression were found five times more likely to also suffer from sleep disorders. And part of sleep disorder is just wanting to sleep all the time. And here he is so deep in sleep. Honestly, I don't think he cares that there's a storm. And yet they wake him up. Look at verse 9 of chapter 1. And he answered, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. By the way, that word, uh, when he says Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh. Keep that in mind. That's critical. This terrified them. They asked, what have you done? They knew he was running. Isn't that interesting? They knew he was running away from God because what? He already told them. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down? Now drop down to verse 14. And then they cried to the Lord. They cried, Yahweh. Oh Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Verse 17, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was inside for how long? Three days. Now, again, I want to point out that word Yahweh was the holiest and most prominent name of all names for God. The Hebrews had several names for God. 
Elohim and Adonai and Emmanuel, the list goes on and on. Each one of those represents a, a, a trait or characteristic of God. But when they said Yahweh, they couldn't even write the whole word. They would just write Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. And when it's translated, it's just capital letters, Lord. So here's a pagan group saying, we believe Yahweh. We believe this is the Lord of the sea. We believe this is the creator of the universe, and he is mad at you. And if we throw you overboard, we are dead. And finally, Jonah says, he's not upset with you. He's mad at me. Just throw me overboard. You know what I think he's done? He's given up. He has 100% given up. He just wants to die. He's like, just throw me in the ocean. I could care less right now. And here's what I love about God. Remember, God has mentioned how many times? 38 times. And here's what I love about God. God loves second chances. About the time you think you're worthless, about the time that you think God couldn't possibly use you, He uses you. God loves losers. You know why I say that? Because He loves me. I can't tell you how many times I felt like a loser. Like, God, how could you possibly use me? And that's when God gets our attention. And here's Jonah. I think as he's sinking in the ocean, he's thinking, this is it. And then surprise, you know, swallowed by well. Now, I'm sure that wasn't the best solution, you know, that he wanted. But that's exactly what God did to prove his point. God will do anything at any time to make his point. And this is critical because, again, when I was a kid, what do we always focus on? The whale. We think it's a whale. It was a great fish, okay? We always focus on. Now, could a fish really, that, could a fish that big? You know, when you were a kid, I caught catfish, but I don't think you could have swallowed it. No, I was bigger than a cat. You know, we get into that big argument. That's not the focus of the story. The reason the focus is not on the fish is you need to understand, God is saying, I will do anything at any time to stop you in your tracks and shake you up and get you out of your comfort zone. God doesn't want us comfortable. Have you noticed that? Have you ever noticed in your life you've planned everything out and you're very comfortable? What happens after a while when you're really comfortable? <laughs> Here comes the storm. You know, how many times have you uttered, did not see that coming? Life changes like that. And that's what God wants us to realize. At any time, he'll use anything to get us shook up and out of our comfort zone. Maybe God's doing that to some of you right now. You came in here today and you're just kind of comfortable, but you just sense there's a storm in your life and you're blaming God, but it's God's way of saying, I'm going to get you out of this comfort zone. I will get your attention. He will stop you in your tracks. When I was in high school, um, if you've ever been to amusement parks, have you ever seen the annoying like junior high and high school students who run to every ride? Don't you hate them? I was that kid. Okay, so, and Six Flags Over Mid-America, I knew that park like the back of my hand. I mean, I absolutely knew that park. So my buddies and I, we kind of had a game after you've been there so many times. You'd get off a ride, and one guy would yell, the next ride, and then you'd run to that ride. Really mature group. So anyway, uh, one of us yelled, Screaming Eagle, and that was way on the other side of the park, and so he took off. Now, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to let this guy get two steps ahead of me because I know a shortcut. He's going to go the route everybody else goes. I'm going to take the route that says workers only. 
because that's, I was a really sharp kid too. Really high on the SAT, if you can tell. Anyway, so sure enough, we got to that little fork and, and, uh, and I just took off. And I mean, I kicked it into overdrive. Now, when I was, uh, uh, your heart, this is gonna be hard to believe, when I was about 17, I only weighed 145. I actually was pretty fast. So kicked it into overdrive. And all of a sudden, I don't know why, but they put a rope <laughs> across this one road. And it had a little kick to it, a little bite. And I'm running, and I'm not lying, I'm running as fast as I can. And all of a sudden, I catch the rope, and it just gives and then throws me back. I do like a backflip, I'm rolling. And I, I, sh I stood up, and I thought, well, maybe nobody saw. And I looked around, and I hear, oh, my God, that's the funniest thing ever. You know, everybody's laughing and clapping. So I, I get to the ride finally, and my buddy said, uh, yeah, Robertson, man, you've lost a step. I'm like, dude, check this out. And I pull my shirt up. I mean, there is like a red whelp. And he goes, I don't even want to know. I don't, I don't even want to know. I've thought about that a lot, is that how many times in your life are you just cruising along, and all of a sudden it's like God just like, wham! I don't think so. And we're like, that hurt. And God's like, yeah, I know. I know. I intended it to leave a mark so that you'd get it. So that you'd stop in your tracks because the way you're going right now, you're not listening. And that's exactly what he did with Jonah. Maybe that's exactly what he's doing right now with some of you. He's just trying to stop you in your tracks. The second thing is just as critical is there's times in life that we're running from God's love. You get to chapter 2, and you know what he does in the belly well? What would you do? He prayed, okay? You get to chapter 3, and you know what he does in chapter 3? He preaches this message of repentance, and you know what Nineveh did in 40 days? What do you think they did? They changed their hearts. 40 days. They were ready to hear about God's love, God's mercy, and God's judgment. And God said, look, Jonah, they changed their heart in 40 days. Think about 40 for just a second, how important that is. The flood, 40 days. When Moses lived out his life 120 years, three 40-year segments, definite defined segments in his life. At Mount Sinai, Moses brought down the law. And in 40 years, the Israelites wandered. And then Jesus in the wilderness, how long was he in the wilderness that he was tempted? 40. So anytime you're reading and you see 40, you know transformation is coming. And in 40 days, this entire nation was transformed. Why? Because of the love of Christ. I want you to fast forward to chapter 4. And these three verses shows you the heart of Jonah and the heart of God. Jonah, this is unbelievable, was greatly displeased and he became angry and he prayed to the Lord, Oh Lord, it is not what you said when I was still at home. That is why I was so quick to flee tar to Tarshish. I knew, this is almost funny, I knew that you were gracious and you were a compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life. This guy's wanting to die again. Why? Because you actually love those people from Nineveh. I don't mind preaching judgment, but I had no idea you loved them. Now, before we get upset with this guy, 
I want you to fast forward to the New Testament. Do you remember James and John? You remember what John is called? The most what? Beloved. My name means beloved. God's gracious gift, okay? But John wasn't always this love-filled guy. Do you remember when <laughs> they were headed to Jerusalem and they went to this little Samaritan town and they were rejected? Do you remember their suggestion to Jesus? It went something like this in Luke, uh, Luke 9, 54. Jesus, burn that baby down. You remember? It doesn't say that. That's a loose translation. But just take that city and torch it. Now, have we ever been that way about someone? Now, let's be honest. That there's a group of people that were like, you know, they just make me feel really uneasy. And if God judges them, you know, he has to. Now, we don't want to talk about that out loud, but we all have issues, all of us. Uh, years ago, in Illinois, we were preaching a series uh, through the seven promises of the promise keeper. If you remember, promise keepers was huge a few years ago. One of them was racial reconciliation. And one of our elders, who was a missions professor at Lincoln uh, Christian University, um, he said, I really want to preach that. He said, I've been a missionary and um, over in Africa, and I would love to preach on racial reconciliation. And I thought that was great. I couldn't believe what he said. He was so honest. He said, you know, uh, I know Swahili. I've, I've served time in Africa. I'm a missions professor. So I know in your mind I'm speaking on this because I've got my act together. But he said, I read that time and time again, and it said racial reconciliation. And I realized that racial reconciliation means that I actually have a relationship with people that are nothing like me. And I realized I'm not reconciling anything because I don't even know them. That has always hit me. Because I can honestly say, you know what, I'm not racist, but have I been intentional to get to know people that are nothing like me? I mean, how many conversations in my life do I have with people that are nothing like me? That's one of the things I hope here on the West Side we can all help each other with, is do whatever it takes to reach people that are not just like us, that don't talk like us, don't look like us, and strive to build that relationship. Why? Because God loves who? Everyone. And His love is beyond comprehension. That's what's happening here. Jonah gets to the point that he's finally done what God is asking him to do, not out of obedience, but out of guilt, out of fear. And then he realizes, you know, God loves at such a deep level, I can't even comprehend it. And you know, God's love still does that today. It still changes lives. I was thinking about this the other day. It's still not mind-numbing. Um, I've been in full-time ministry since 1984. 1984. And sometimes... I'm going to be really honest, I don't like ministry. It's not the job I want. How many of you have ever had a job, don't say right now, but had a job, you might love it, but there's days like, eh. I mean, one time I looked outside the garbage, it was like January, the dump truck was coming by, and it was dark and drizzly, and I looked out and I'm like, you know, that doesn't look like a bad job. You know, I, I re <laughs> did you ever have one of those days? Like, I'll do anything right now than what I'm doing right now. There's times ministers like that, but I'll tell you what keeps me in ministry. It's transformation. It's when I see where somebody was and I see God get a hold of them 
and over years, I see God begin to change them. Uh, God has honestly given me one of the greatest gifts, and that was I was a youth minister for 25 years or so. And I, I cannot tell you over those years now to see some of the young people that at the time I'm like, I know I'm, I know you are not going to do well, you know, and to see them grow in Christ and see them transform and changing other people's lives, that's what makes ministry the best. God's transformational power. So I've got a book I would love for you to read this summer. It's an older book. It's called Through the Gates of Splendor. Through the Gates of Splendor. And you won't believe this as far as God's transformational love that's still alive today. It's in this room today. In 1956, five missionary families moved as close as they could to, at the time, the world declared this the most dangerous tribe near the Ecuador. And now, how dangerous was this tribe? There was actually surveyors going in for oil. This was an oil-rich area, and they kept uh, getting communicated with back to the companies. They were killing everybody coming in there. And those that even could get close to the tribe to do research found that within those tribes, that there was a 60% chance that family members would be murdered. They were murdering one another. That was part of their culture. And these missionaries decided, is there ever a group that needs to hear about the peace and the love of Jesus Christ? And so they did everything they could to get to the tribe, build friendships, and then gradually share with them the love of Christ. So these five missionaries gradually started putting gifts into the tribe, and then they put a date on the calendar to go in. And uh, when they landed, they were talking on their uh, CB, on their airplane. They went in, the families were all excited, and then silence. And the families knew something just happened. And then uh, they got a hold of the government. The government got back because these were American missionaries. So it got back to the States. And the word spread. They sent out a huge search party. Life magazine, of all things, sent a reporter in, a photographer. And the, that article hit the front page of Life magazine with all these pictures of these five missionaries' bodies floating in the river, massacred with machetes and spears. Now, if the story ended there, it would be a tragic story. But what's interesting is some of those family members, they didn't give up. The pilot's sister, her name was Rachel Saint. She stayed right at the edge where the tribe lived. A couple of young women came out. She started sharing Christ about a God of peace. And they went back into the tribe and they invited her in. They said, if you're a woman and you speak this peace and that there's a God that can give us peace, we'll hear you out. You may or may not be killed. She goes, at this point, I don't care. And so she shared Christ. And one by one, the tribesmen started coming to Jesus Christ. They called it a new trail. They were taking a new trail. And then, this is unbelievable, she sent for the kids her nephew and niece, to come live with her in the jungle. And the family knew that that was the family's passion. And they grew up their entire lives, their entire lives in that tribe. Now, here's what's even more remarkable. One of those young men, his name was Steve Saint. Steve Saint needed a dad. One of the tribesmen came to him and said, this American kid can't hunt. He doesn't know how to put poison on a spear. I mean, he's useless. And she said, well, he needs a dad. He goes, yeah, he does. She said, who do you think should be his dad? He goes, why would you ask me? 
She said, because you're the man who killed his dad. And he said, then I'll be his dad. And there's a picture as you go through the story where one of the other tribesmen baptized his sister. And this guy became this guy's dad all the way through. Now, fast forward, Steve Sink goes back to the States, raises three kids, three adult kids. He has this relationship uh, with Mankai, is his name. Mankai is like his dad. He's a grandparent to these kids. They love Mankai. His daughter, youngest daughter, Stephanie, served a year with Campus Crusade all over the world. And she came home. She was 19 years old. They were so excited. They were having this huge party. And Mankai met her in the airport. And they said, here he is with his feathers. He's got everything except the spear. He's got his feathers. He's got his full uniform, because this is a celebration in the airport. He's jumping up and down and screaming. And he said he just wasn't fitting in well in the airport. And he was just hugging on Stephanie. He was so proud of her. And she went home, and they were getting her to have this huge party. And she said, Dad, I just need to lay down for a little bit. I'm ha- I have a headache. And his wife came in and said, you know, Stephanie, that's not like her. Um, you might want to go in and let's talk to her, even pray with her. And as he was praying with her, she went in convulsions, and they rushed her to the hospital. And as they were rushing her to the hospital, Mankai, he said he hadn't seen this look in years, had this look of like, not just fear, but rage. And he's like, who's responsible for this? You know what he was thinking? I'm going to take them out. You're not going to hurt my little granddaughter. And he got to the hospital, and the doctor came out, and he said she's had a brain hemorrhage. She died. And he stood there. And Steve Saint said, my entire world just vanished. My little girl just died. And of all people, it was mankind. who reached up, put his arm on him, and he said, don't you get it? Don't you get it? I'm an old man. And someday I know I'm going to die. I'm going to die soon. And God, he just took his, his most beautiful star to heaven. And I will, I'll be there for her. And I'll greet that star. Because I know how God loves her and I know how he loves me. We'll get through this. Now, I want you to let that play out in your head. There's a missionary who was killed. Killed. Slaughtered. And you've got a sister going in and still loving. You've got the very man who's transformed by Jesus Christ raising this young man, and now this guy is ministering to him at his darkest point. How does that happen? Because of the love of Jesus Christ. You can't explain it. There's nothing that will change the world like the love of Jesus Christ. You're probably not going to agree with me, but who wins the election? has nothing to do with the transformational love of Jesus Christ. That's what's going to change our lives. That's what's going to change this community. It's Jesus Christ. It's his love. It's the one thing people cannot understand is the love of Jesus. You cannot comprehend that kind of love. None of us can comprehend that kind of love. So we're going to do something just a little bit different this morning. As uh, uh, we have uh, the worship team is just going to play. And for a couple of minutes, if you need to pray, would you just pray where you're at? Because here's what I know. My guess is there's a Nineveh in your life right now. It may be a location or it could be a relationship. But you have a Nineveh. You have something right now that you're struggling with. 
So we want to give you time. We don't want to rush through this to pray about that. If you need to come up here or you'd like to pray with someone, come on up here and pray. If you'd like to stand and pray with somebody where you're at or group, we want to give you time to do that too. Because all of us have that temptation to run from God. All of us have a Nineveh in our lives that one time or another we have to deal with. And the best thing to do is to start by surrendering that to God and to pray. So let's just stand. And let's let God move your hearts to do whatever God has called you to do. And again, if you need to pray where you're at or you need to come here, we'll pray with you. Let's just stand and let God lead.